Podcast. My name is Abigail Kelly, and today I'm with Eden Apayakubi. Hi. Hi. How are you? Oh, you know, it's um, it's this has been a little bit of a journey for us today. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, it's been good. Of course, this is the last interview I have of the year, and of course, it's the the one where all the technical trouble happens. But you know what? That's just the way of it. <laughs> hey, we learn and we grow. Yeah, I mean, you just got to you just got to roll with the punches. We're recording now. That's all that matters, baby. Um, so uh, what are you what are you doing today? Are you are you enjoying this fine weather that I don't know that you have because you're on the opposite side of the country? <laughs> it is a chilly November day in the DC area, but mm-hmm. a pretty chilly. We have fluffy white clouds and a blue sky, mm-hmm. so we'll take it. Um, <laughs> uh, I am uh, working from home today, uh, mm-hmm. but I usually work in a a library downtown. Uh, I work for a federal library. Yeah. And, um, you know, so I get a chance to walk around, you know, pretty landmarks, you know, on my way to work, on my lunch break, you know. Yeah. My my brother has lived in D.C. for the past, like, God, four years or so. um, And I've gotten the chance to go visit him twice. And each time I've been like, dang, all these people on their lunch breaks are just getting to go walk around the mall and, like, see all the monuments and just chill at the Smithsonian for a while. And I'm like, I'm in San Francisco and I can't do anything like that. Yeah, you, you, um, you know, especially if you're down in the, the near or around the mall, I, I used to be able to uh, take a lunch break um, in the my favorite interior space, the Smithsonian um American Art and Natural Portrait Gallery. It's one building. It's are two museums in one building, and mm-hmm. they have this open courtyard that's beautiful. Mm-hmm. And uh, you can, you know, come in with your little packed lunch, you know, your little like plastic salad, and come mm-hmm. for your little like leftover pasta, and sit in like the chairs they have there and enjoy being in this beautiful architectural space while you have your little packed lunch from home. So. Or feed all those giant squirrels that are just around oh, in D.C.? No, no. Do not feed the squirrels. <laughs> they, they are mutants. They are a, a menace. They do not care. They're so big. <laughs> like, they're like, do, do not, like, antagonize them. They're like them. chihuahuas. <laughs> like, they look cute, but they're plotting. And they, they are wise, and they are dangerous. Um, and you just, you just give them their room. You let them mm-hmm. do what they do. They will. They will get their food. There are lots of tourists dropping pizza crusts and make French fries, and they are getting big and strong. And you just let them go on their way. You um. you live your life. They live their lives. Exactly. And you never need intersect. Because if they if, if you have something that they want, mm-hmm. and you decide not to give it to them, you're not yeah. taking them for an answer. No, no. I I I remember I was walking I think we went to the Lincoln Monument and uh we you know walking through that big grassy area right there and uh and I saw like a bunch of tourists who were like standing around this like giant squirrel that was just sitting there and it was just sitting there and looking up at them and they were like oh my god look how cute and they were taking pictures and I saw the look in this squirrel's <laughs> eyes and it was like the shark from Jaws <laughs> just dead it was all it cared about was food and menace right no i fully saw a um a youtube video i i you know this is from like early youtube so it's probably gone now because it's just mm-hmm. like short and silly but it was someone in dc taking a video of a squirrel uh that's like 
the squirrel from the earth, they watch the squirrel look at the bench mm-hmm. and then hop on the bench and look at them and look mm-hmm. at the the taller side, the back of the bench, hop mm-hmm. on the taller back of the bench, and then immediately leap at the person. Oh so, my god! <laughs> and you just hear the person yell and drop the phone. Yeah. And <laughs> oh man, never trust a squirrel. Never trust a squirrel. I have I have three rules: never trust a man who shows up in open-toed shoes to a first date. Never trust a squirrel, and um, also always carry a jacket. Those are my three rules in life. <laughs> All fair. All fair. Thank you. Thank you. I think so. I think so. Uh, the one about the open-toed shoes, though, I, I will die on that hill. I feel like there's a story there. Listen, if you're just... I am from San Francisco. Everyone knows what's happening in San Francisco and what has been happening in San Francisco for a long time. This isn't news. So if a person walks up to you on a first date and they're wearing open-toed shoes in this city, they are... Living a life that I cannot understand because the idea of wearing open-toed shoes in this town with the way our streets are, <laughs> I, I don't think we're compatible. I don't think my level of anxiety and your level of carelessness, I don't think those, those two streams cannot cross. I am so sorry. Um, but speaking of uh, incompatible people... <laughs> I'm really good at this. I do a good job. <laughs> so today we're talking about your book, The Bennett Women, um, which I was so excited to read. I don't remember when it first crossed my path. It must have been right around when it when it came out, because I remember seeing something about it being like, well, The Bennett Women, oh, that's weird. It almost sounds like it could be like a like a Pride and Prejudice rewrite. That's interesting. Um, and then I, I clicked on it and was like, well, Abigail, you freaking dingus. That's... <laughs> It's almost like this. That's kind of what it is. Um, but I, I I, had it on my list for ages. And um, I, I was like, okay, this it was like one, the thing I had planned for, for my like time off read. Um, and then, well, I just got no time off. So I didn't get the chance to read it in the way that I had planned. Um, but then you shot me an email and, and I was like, yes, a perfect excuse to read this book. Um, and I dove into it and I... As someone who grew up on Pride and Prejudice, that was like the staple literature in my home. My grandma's favorite book, my mother's favorite book. As a kid, we watched the uh, 1995 A&E special like a million times. My mom had the box set VHS uh, uh, of that special and just going all the time. Um, I loved The Bennett Women. Oh, thank you. I'm so glad. <laughs> I loved it, Eden. It was beautiful. It was so I you I I, I like have a, have a lot I want to talk about about like the the importance of classics and the importance of rewriting them to um to to bring them into the now and why that's important. Um and and why we do that and you know what we get out of that. But I do just want to get it out of the way that what you brought to the story was so lovely. Um, This like you didn't just I think people have a tendency to look at uh, classic retellings, right, as a sort of like one to one. Oh, they're just going to be like slapping new names on people and a, a new, you know, setting like they're good everyone's gonna be in high school right or something like that and but it's fundamentally going to be absolutely the same 
you somehow managed to make an entirely different story with the core of Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen, the, all of the best parts of it still in the marrow of your incredibly unique voice. And it was just this beautiful blend that I like, I loved so much. I just kept every chapter, I was just smiling. Um, it was, and I, I, I kept like going back and rereading paragraphs. Like, I know what she's doing here. I know that this is like almost a one-to-one for the plot, but she, but it's so well interwoven with like I, your unique voice that I was just like, this is, this is, this was so good. I had such a good time. Oh, well, it's so wonderful to hear. I mean, the struggle is, is that when you say retelling, there's retellings that are like, you know, the, the, um, or sort of, I'll take Shakespeare. So Mm -hmm. there's, there's, um, modernizations that are like Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet, which is Mm -hmm. same, language we're doing some clever things with like what a rapier is like making the, the gun the gun the, the brand rapier as opposed to making it uh, and yeah. having people fight with rapiers but the language characters are mostly straight to say and then you have modernizations like let's say 10 things i hate about you or, yeah. or west side story where you take the ideas of the story and you translate them into your current times it's sort of like what does this kind of betrayal mean today what, the, what does this kind of um, consequence for the like, what does the idea of ruin being to the society um, for women? Because there's always a ruin for women, um, <laughs> you know. Uh, and and it's a, more of a translation than a retelling. And I think you know, um, it's, it's I, I mean, I've seen in my reviews that some people come expecting a one to one, and they're a little bit yeah. disappointed. And sort of like, well, it, I, 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 maybe I, I feel like an Austin translation <laughs> sounds so. It sounds like I. I speaking way too highly of myself because she does speak very well to across your races which is why we're still talking about uh pride and prejudice but i i try to think i I approach this as a idea of what would this look like uh i I started with the idea of like what does the modern idea of an accomplished woman look like and then you know sort of poking at class issues and um and then you know, and then also race and uh, orientation and uh, gender identity, because those are all real and present things, and it's just people who exist. It's just sort of like you know, people, the people always existed. Yes, we're, people were not being acknowledged, and so like now that we are acknowledging everyone, let's bring everyone in. You know, um, what what would this look like uh, on a college campus? And I definitely want to do a college campus just because I felt like having gone to a small New England college campus myself that there's so few places where you get such different kinds of people in one place or in like a small group like my campus was like uh, 5,000 which is a, a medium-sized town if you will and you mm-hmm. know it would be unusual to have millionaires and the children of school teachers who mentioned to each other in the cafeteria Mm-hmm. A small, either in a small English village, or a small town these days. So I, try, I think like yeah. where do people get jammed together like that? So I, I'm really, really happy that you were picking up what I'm putting down because you know I, it's what exactly what I was going for. It's like trying to uh, mar- uh, bring the issue, the discussions uh, uh, modern, but sort of maintain the ideas. I feel like 
it's it's a novel of such great ideas and such great conversations. I mean, well, that's you. That I think that's where the the bones that you you maintained are really like you you picked all of the most important and and weighty topics that I think get they they get lost in favor of the hoopla around Elizabeth and Darcy, right? Um, this great love story. But, you know, what Pride and Prejudice is, is about is not just about this love story. It's so much about classism and it's so much about uh, a woman's place. And it's like, it's, it's so much about this idea of, of, um, upward mobility and what that means, right? And what it doesn't mean. And these invisible barriers. You talk a lot about the invisible barriers in your book. You actually confront that. Whereas like Jane Austen obviously didn't use that vocabulary, but like that's that's what she was talking about maybe without knowing it. Whereas you are fully aware and bringing it to the fore of the plot where it's just like, what is actually separating these people? Not just our love interests, but everyone in this in this tiny bubble of this college campus what is separating them what is bringing them together and um yeah you have this like really interesting confrontation with like how do the rich kids who are going to this fancy school right interact with these kids who were like just as accomplished just as intelligent just as hardworking, right probably more so in a lot of ways um how do they, on what should be equal ground, still interact in a way that is fundamentally classist? Um, and how do they, how do they bridge that gap? Do they want to? Um, and it was like it, it was so. The way you put it in this college campus, I think, was like the perfect setting, right? Because it's insular. But it's also these all of these people are adults and they're making adult decisions um, and they are trying to figure themselves out because they're about to go out to the real world. Most of them are, you know, uh, in their last year of college. And like, what does that mean? What kind of choices are you going to make for your life Um, with the framing of these two polar opposite people (laughs) coming together? Like it's it's like it was it was so perfect. I, I just I I. I also loved how you didn't just stick with our, you know, our version of Darcy and Elizabeth, our our Will and our um, and our, our EJ. You didn't just you didn't just stick with those two. You actually moved the narrative around to these different characters who we only get looks at through the eyes of Elizabeth in the original text, right? Um, like uh, Jane, for instance, right? We we get to see her love story, but we don't actually get to experience her love story at all. So it was really really cool for me to be like, oh, actually, I get to see the moment that Jane. Meets her. Oh, really? Really? <laughs> well, I, I do. I, I think that uh, one of the things that makes it so enduring is that there's such a great cast of prime, of characters in Pride and Prejudice. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, if, if there's a sort of modern adaptation that influenced me the most, I would say it was the, again, I'm going to date myself, Lizzie, uh, Lizzie, Lizzie Diaries, um, yes. web series. Yeah. And um, I, you know, I remember. Like I would be looking forward to the ones that are like somehow Lydia took over, or mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. when we just got to t- hang with Charlotte, and I was like, "Well, it's my story. I can do what I want." And, um, yeah. And you know, in in the very first version, um, you know, well, the very very first draft, which I was just sort of like, "I've completed a novel, hooray!" Um, was third person omniscient. So um, yeah. 
Oh, um, wow. That, that was really different. And I learned after around the submission, um, you know, I found my agent to a Twitter competition, which is, you know, a, a whole other story, but like amazing miracle. But, you know, she, she, she loved it and she backed me in like, you know, using this like not too common voice these days, but like after a first round submission, we realized that like, you know, not a lot of people think that they're a person on mission anymore. So I was like, okay. And so there was, no, for me, there's no losing the perspective of those characters. That was part and parcel of me. That, that's what made it the better woman versus, you know, uh, versus just EJ. Like, mm-hmm. like I, I never envisioned EJ the novel um, or EJ and Darcy. I was always as many characters as I could get. And yeah. they go, there's a lot that's on the cutting room floor or still in my head that I, I miss. Like, there's bits of Tessa's story that was in there that I had to be sacrificed yeah. and they get narrative um, fluidity. But I immediately thought, well, if I can't be um, the person omniscient, it has to be multi-voice because, and, you know, I was re- I was I had also read Game of Thrones, and, mm-hmm. and so it's like you know, multi voice um, so it seemed like okay, yeah, that's a great way to get lots of perspectives on the same events and see the, the uh, rippling um, impacts of things. So yeah. uh, I I'm, I really it was it was sort of a mess for me, and it made the writing fun. Yeah, I mean, I think it would have, I think the story would have lost a lot if you had just done it from EJ's perspective, right? Or right. Will's perspective. I think, you know, this this multi-layering of, like, interconnections that you have, because, I mean, really, the story is, like, it's about, like, a group of friends kind of coming together and their interactions and, like, how they fall in love with each other and how they force each other, you know, like, to not do the things that they actually should be doing and, like... Every action they take influences the relationships of those around them. Um, and we see that through, you know, Elizabeth's eyes in the in Pride and Prejudice, right? But we don't we don't actually get to experience it. And so it was really cool to to be able to experience that same narrative in the in in a modern context that we're more used to. I think television and movies and stuff and um, you know, modern fiction has kind of predisposed us, like you said, like with Game of Thrones, to be look, to look at a a conflict or a situation through multiple eyes and to see the different directions that you know action can can take. Um, so it's it it I I feel like it it satisfied the like the little gremlin in me who like isn't okay with just like being focused on one thing for too long. Um, and it was just it was really it was really. It was very satisfying for me personally also because I was like, yes, I did always want to know what was going on in the heads of like, because we we see like Jane, for instance, in Pride and Prejudice, who is Jamie in, in um, the Bennett women, right? We see her through Elizabeth's eyes as a very like virginal, virtuous, you know, sweet character who really doesn't talk much and she kind of keeps her feelings inside and oh, she she's just sits there and is uh distraught when when her beau leaves and doesn't say he she thinks he's gonna marry her but then he doesn't and oh she's so sad because she loved him so much but she doesn't actually like say anything in the books <laughs> really right so i always was like well what's going on in her head is she really just content to sit there and let things happen to her or not um and so it was really nice to see jamie come in and be like no <laughs> i'm in charge of my life <laughs> Well, that's the one thing I, I think that 
um, it's one thing that like people who I want to one really probably aren't happy with, but like my Jane, my Jamie could not be a shrinking violet. There was no mm-hmm. universe. Mm-hmm. Um, just you know, and and uh, and living her life, you know, she yeah. like she's um, taking a, a bold stand. So, um, I I wanted to give her the natural hesitancies around her relationship that made sense. So like, yeah. you know, I, I, it, oh, I, I am very grateful to be out of the dating pool. And because, you know, this modern dating in itself is so confusing and difficult. Like, it's like now that, you know, we've been released from the shackles of, uh, you know, well, we thought we were released from the shackles of, you know, a heteropatriarchy and in dating. But then, you know, now, you, you forget that, like, Law is one thing and customs another, and mm-hmm. custom is still ruling high, and, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and and but now the burden is on on women to police themselves, especially in relationships, mm-hmm. and so, uh, uh, Jamie navigating that and you know just you know, of trying to be cool and trying to be not too much, um, you know, and while she's still like establishing her own identity, it was, I felt like a very realistic um, kind of. Th- Thing that a person goes, I feel like a lot of college women go through in general, but like mm-hmm. her, her is, is, is just an extra high diff, difficulty level as a, a, a trans woman. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was just like, I, <laughs> I didn't want to be one of those like a, a sort of annoying too much YouTube videos of just sort of like explaining the plot, but just sort of like I wanted more, more um, the reasons to be clear because. Um, mm-hmm. I, I also think I, I'm I'm not saying that uh, Jane Austen's reasons weren't clear, but I think that they were the all the cues were clear for her culture at her time. Yes. Like yes. she said an address, and the people knew exactly what those people meant. Like when mm-hmm. I, I saw this great video, I, I I watch way too many YouTube videos. This is what you're learning about me now. <laughs> um, but I think there's a lady, uh, Doctor Olivia, uh, no Octavia Cox, who does these deep literature dives. Um, mm-hmm. on YouTube and was talking about the gardeners, the like or the economic position of the gardeners and what um, they meant and why it meant was a big deal that oh gosh, I hope I can credit to right YouTuber. Um, it might have been another person, but someone did yeah. uh, uh, econo- the, the actual economic position of the gardeners that in the book is addressed by the address and the profession. And we did not understand that Cheapside was not cheap. Cheapside was, a, was just like the area of London where the lawyers lived, um, and like it was mm-hmm. near um, uh, where um, near the city, um, mm-hmm. where like, the financial district. And so, if you don't know that, you might read that and think, "Oh, the gardeners are just like you know noisy, poor relations." But they are no, they're doing very well, and, mm-hmm. and it sort of is a reminder of like. Um, Mrs. Bennett's family was doing very well. They just weren't gentry. Yeah. Um, and, um, and so just, and it makes you take a, a lot of things differently with, um, mm-hmm. I'm also the biggest Mrs. Bennett defender in the world. I know that she is, Controversial. she has her, she has her, her faults, but um, I, I believe she was driven to them. <laughs> I mean, I can't imagine the high stress that would be, living in a world where you have so little power and then giving birth to so many girls who you know have so little power and who you know will should something happen to you or your husband um 
they will be destroyed because they do not have someone to look out for them. They don't, they are not entitled to property or money or like, yeah, I, I would also go a little, I, I'd have a nervous breakdown every once in a while too, thinking about like, oh God, I need to make sure because I could, I, I need to make sure they're okay because I could die from a paper cut at any time. Right. Like I could, I could get drowned by my dress catching a, a wrong water. Yep. Uh, yeah. Seeing, by the, seeing it by a picnic and the, the my, my wool gown gets caught. That's it for me. <laughs> I can look at the sun on accident and go blind and then die. Like that, that's, that, you know, who knows? Horses. Horses food. doing things. Yeah. Like- food, could, food could be bad. I don't know. I had yeah. bad dinner one time and then I got heartburn and then I died. Um, it's so interesting, too, that you talk about, like, all of these subtle cultural cues that we are maybe blind to if you don't do a certain amount of research, right? Like you've done. Um in, in the text that kind of robs the text, I think, of a little bit of its impact, um, which is, you know, why I, I said earlier, like, I think that you took the parts that get glossed over now and you brought them into a modern narrative where they became the forefront again, because this is not to say that Jane Austen's work was not saying something important at the time. It's just over time we've lost the context. And so we're only seeing right. what we can hold on to, which is the romance um, in the same way. I am obsessed with the book Pamela by Samuel Richardson. Have you read it? So Pamela is considered one of the first romance novels ever. Um, It was written in like 1742 or something crazy like that. I forget. Um, But it was his more famous novel is Clarissa, which is basically the same novel. It's about a virtuous woman who uh, a terrible man tries to ruin. um, I think I've heard of Clarissa. Like she ends up in the brothel and then. Yeah. Yeah. Pamela has a happy ending. So it is a romance novel, but they're basically kind of the same uh, story. Pamela is told through a series of letters and journal entries. She's this young, like 14 year old girl who is working as a um, she's like a she's technically, I guess, a maid, but she's more like a companion to this lady, this rich, rich lady. Um, Her father is a pastor who has fallen on hard times. um, And she, she basically was sent into service and she's been educated by this lady who like took her under her wing and loved her so much and, you know, really made sure she was an educated young woman, despite not being gentry. And then at the beginning of the novel, she dies and her son comes back from London to take over the estate. And he is a a rakish young man. And he immediately sees our dear beloved Pamela and he wants to ruin everything about her. Um, because of course, right. Uh, and most of the like first half of the novel is him like trying to trap her in a closet and like force her to, to kiss him and stuff. And she's like, Oh no. And she faints or cries hysterically. And he's like, so put off that he runs away. Um, but she kind of does it on purpose. Anyway, I got this whole, people judge Pamela very harshly. She's very, very smart. But there are these long lists in this in this novel, like that seem to us very out of place where she'll be like, oh, and this is what I bought with my money. I bought this bolt of fabric and I bought this and then I did this and here's what I'm going to do with it. I'm going to make this type of hat and I'm going to make two two slippers and I'm going to make a, a kerchief that looks like this and this and this and this. And to a modern reader, we are fully missing the context. We're just like, this is just a flippant, you know, 14 year old girl's shopping list. Like, I don't need to read this. Right. But to a reader at the time, they would know exactly what her socioeconomic status was by what she feels she is allowed to 
buy and wear. She has enough money that she's given by her terrible, terrible boss um, who wants to ruin her to buy basically whatever she wants. But she knows she can't do that because if she wears, say, a silk dress, she's way above her station. So she buys a bunch of muslin and she buys a bunch of like... um, I forget what it's called, like calico or whatever. And she, she and she makes these very beautiful dresses out of very humble material because she knows she's she can't walk out the house like that. She can't go back to her parents wearing fancy clothes because everyone will assume she's a ruined woman. Um, and in, in the same vein, I think we are missing all of that context in Pride and Prejudice. Like you said, everyone would know exactly what Jane Austen meant when she said certain things and what the socioeconomic status was and what the classism was. That reminds me, this is definitely a Dr. Octavia Cox one. Mm-hmm. I, I'm for certain about this one. It's about the class of uh, Mr. Uh, Mr. Bingley and how mm-hmm. from the first page, we know that Mr. Bingley is not landed gentry because he's letting a house. And, yes. uh, and, and we, like, you know, for all Dar- Darcy's snobbery, his best friend is someone who's letting a house. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think it's supposed to make us look at Darcy cross-eyed through a hole and go like, wait, 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 wait. Why mm-hmm. is he okay? <laughs> but no one else is okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's just, it's just something I think we, we miss, right? So right. when you translate that to modern terms, it becomes very, very clear. But if you don't do that, if you don't do it well, I think a lot of times, like, again, what we're seeking in these retellings is the romance, because that's what we're, you know, that's what we're primed to look for. And so a lot of times those details get missed by authors who are retelling them um and they're just like well it doesn't you know like it, it will just make uh darcy rich and her like sort of middle class all right that's probably fine right <laughs> like when really there's like a lot more going on there um but i did want to i did want to ask um so recently um there was a tweet going around which is a bad start to any conversation. Um, But it was this hot take that was like, oh my God, people and like new authors and like particularly authors of color, like please stop doing classic retellings because like just make up your own stories. Like we've had enough of them. Uh, Like you should be doing, you should be doing your own stuff, please. Um, And everyone was like, that is what, what are you? What are you saying? Um, and a lot of people jumped in to be like, here's why these still matter. And also anyone can write whatever they want. And I, it got me to thinking because I was in the middle of reading your book, I was like, OK, I would like to know from you personally what you think the value of reclaiming these stories now by many different types of people is. I think that if the story is worth telling it's worth retelling mm-hmm. basically um i think that the classic literature is what it's giving us is a window into the values and the mores and the the ideas of the past while giving us some beautiful uh prose or some very like witty dialogue mm-hmm. but the story is enduring and that's why there, there are thousands of novels that we are not le- reading that uh, give, will give us a similar window by mm-hmm. other authors. I think I'm uh, uh, I, just a small example, but um, I personally think that you know, you if 
that, that Elizabeth Gaskell could be as well read as Jane Austen for if we're just talking about social import. If mm-hmm. we're just talking about like understanding the nineteenth um, century. Um, mm-hmm. But she it's not as widely read because uh, I'm not like sure she's I might say she's not as good a writer, but her 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 stories and her prose are as don't capture us the way that Jane Austen's do. Mm-hmm. Um and because and I think also because Elizabeth Gaskell is writing very specifically for her time and Jane Austen is writing for her time, but her themes are more universal. And mm-hmm. that's why her stories are more enduring. And so if the themes are what are what's selling the story selling me a story from the nineteenth century, a theme can sell my the themes can sell my story today. Because mm-hmm. the, the, the themes are what are springing us back again and again, and it was makes it retellable. And the fact that we are um, identify able to identify with the themes and ideas in these stories of a plucky young woman and the snobby man that she um, both uh, takes down a pig and learns to <laughs> learns to <laughs> love. Um, are, that's an interesting story. And the fact that you can change the character, like change who the plucky young women are and who the snobby young men are, and still have interesting stories, speaks to how strong the theme is. Mm-hmm. I think it's a credit to the, what resounds in the classic. If yeah. it wasn't there, you wouldn't be able to retell it. So I don't think, I, like, I'm sorry, just to, I love Elizabeth Gaskell, so I'm not dunking on her. But yeah. like Cranford, which is a great slice of life of rural England in the like mid 19th century is not retellable it is speaking to that time. You could, you could make a Cranford for 20th century if you were like to set it in um, Appalachia among a, a community of rural women and looking at their habits like that. You could be inspired by it, but you could not retell Cranford today yeah. because it was meant for that time. And the themes are to reflect that time more than to have a resounding story. Mm-hmm. The classics that stick with us, the classics that we reread, still speak to us today with the core of their story, mm-hmm. and they're still and they're, they're still speaking as we're allowed to speak back, plain and simple. Mm-hmm. That's the engagement. That's literature. That's why we have literature. That's why it's more than just plain entertainment. Because there's been romances, there've been dramas across time, but the stories that resound to us, we get to engage with, and sometimes yeah. that engagement is writing a whole new novel. Yeah. I I love that. I love that answer. I think that's that's totally true. I think that this idea of um oh well, you know, I mean it always it always comes from somebody who very clearly ha- never has trouble seeing themselves in media, right? This this like hot take of well just do something new. Like why like we, we've already do- we've already done that. Just do something new. Well, You've gotten the chance to see yourself in these retold stories thousands and thousands and thousands of times and never complained about it. But the moment somebody who doesn't look or act or have the same life experience as you does it, it's suddenly overdone. Okay, um, that's not fair. <laughs> that's not fair. And also, there are lots of people who are doing new things, who are doing yes. brilliant things. And clearly, you're not paying attention to them. Otherwise, you no. would write just a silly tweet. It's mm-hmm. like, why don't you just go read something new? Like, yeah, how leave, about, leave like, us retellings alone. 
all of those amazing releases that come out every Tuesday, or maybe all of those indie releases that come out literally every day of the week, maybe any of those. Um, it's it's very it's very frustrating. I go very frustrated, but it's fine. Right. It's I fine. mean, <laughs> I'm 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 happy. Like I'm a I'm a happy uh, a person who has written a retelling featuring a riot color. But I can I can list off just off the top of my head five. Uh, I will actually. Have yes, We Met by do. Camille Baker as, an, as a women's fiction novel about uh, someone going back to uh, past loves to see if she's, because she's, metaphysically, I forget what the device is, she's been told that she's already met the love of her life and has to go back and find him. Oh, so, the anxiety of that. Oh, God. Yeah. So she's going back into her past and re- revealing, her, revealing her relationships and seeing who the life of her life actually is. So one novel, mm-hmm. I haven't heard, like, I don't know that that exists in classic literature. It's mm-hmm. new and it's interesting. It's by one of color. If you're so concerned, you can read Camille Baker's book. If you're so yeah. concerned, you can read After Perfect by Mon Gabriel um, about a woman who is finding new love and life after divorce. It's been done by, um, uh, uh, I know, <laughs> I was going to say Diane Keaton, but uh, <laughs> but the, off, the the director, Penny Marshall. It, it sounds mm-hmm. like a Penny Marshall movie, but hey, it, it's about a Filipino woman, a Filipino uh, in, in, in the States and her younger love interest. It is new, it is different, and guess what? It's by one of color, and if you want to read something new and different by one of color, there it is. I can keep going. Yeah. <laughs> but that's just two examples. And, um, you know, they were released in the summer, and if this person was really concerned, they could, like, they could find other things to read, as opposed to yeah. dunking on people just trying to be creative, you know? Yeah. Uh, be part of the solution. Yeah, and, and, and this, like... <sighs> idea of of just because you are retelling a classic story that it is somehow of inher- less inherent like creative value when we've all we've been doing since the invention of story is retelling the same themes over and over and over again um like f- soup to nuts a bad take <laughs> yeah i i also just so Part I, I I think I I haven't really thought of it as an inspiration of mine until now, but I think the fact that I I've been a theater fan like mm-hmm. my whole life, and specifically my family subscribed to the Shakespeare Theater in DC for mm-hmm. uh, a good number of years, and that is literally for a lot of them it's the same set of you know like twelve to fourteen plays <laughs> getting mm-hmm. done, and if you if you subscribe long enough, you're going to see them all probably more than once. Yeah, and you can see how literally the same story can be told different ways based on casting and directorial choices and it and be fascinating you know in different ways i remember two distinct but very beautiful versions of much do about nothing i enjoyed them both times and they were so different from each other um and no one's like we should well actually there are people who are like that but they're exhausting and no one likes them but like very few people are like we should only do shakespeare in you know 16th century um you know drag with yeah. only like with bare staging and like you know live horses like yeah. you know no one's trying to do the globe theater all the time because people understand that what keeps shakespeare alive for 500 years is the themes and the way we engage with them and how mm-hmm. those themes can be brought to a modern audience mm-hmm. but i i feel like this is the thing that people and they have a problem with when it's women having a good time. 
like women, especially women of color, it's like, oh, they're enjoying it too? Well, now this must stop. <laughs> well, don't you think it's a bit much? <laughs> it's gone too far. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's exhausting. It's It's always, it's always been this way. Yeah. But I, I def, I, I am, I was so... I was I I enjoyed your book so much, and I just like it. It just got in my craw. Like I was just like, you just, you just don't, you just don't get it, and that's fine because you're never gonna. Like that's the kind of person who feels that way. It's just, it's just you're a lost cause for the most part. Uh, I I wish I wish you weren't, and there's so many good books that I could recommend you, but I guess I'm just gonna have to deal with that. Um, but it was it was such a delight to read your book, and I thought you brought. You brought so much, like, I, I the, the phrase that springs to mind is, like, new value. Because it's, Pride and Prejudice already has value, right? But you added a layer of, um, of, of emotional resonance to it that was so very now and so very, um, it, like, it, it spoke to so much of what, uh, I know that my friends are going through and, and I'm going through and all of us women in the now times are going through to a certain degree, whether we acknowledge it or not. Um, and it was just, I don't know, I think this idea of dismissing classic retellings out of hand are is just missing so much um, because there's so much that can be told through the stepping stones of 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 something that somebody already knows they like right if you already have those gates thrown open for you by by you know a story that you're retelling then you are then free to say so much more because the person is already engaged you've already sold them um and that allows you to really just dive into things that are unique to your voice and unique to your experience um and that is and that is that is incredibly valuable and i think that a retelling any kind of retelling is is basically uh the writer saying enhance on the part of the story that catches them and for me i mean my story it's a romance but mm-hmm. the economic part is what ca- caught me. The the class yes. differences, the looking at um, the a- accomplishment and uh, uh, the uh, like, sing- the the class signifiers. All were mm-hmm. things that were really interesting to me. There are people that's not why they turn to Austin at all. They want to disappear into that world, and so my enhance is not their enhance, and it's not going mm-hmm. to be for them. And uh, thankfully, there are other. Um, I keep naming other authors. Uh, yeah. Sonali Dev has a great series of um, Austin retellings that are very modernized and uh, that focus on the heroines. And like, Mm -hmm. if you if you are talking to Austin for a heroine, she has some great ones. Um, Except for Fanny Price, sorry, (laughs) (laughs) Fanny Price is the best person that has the worst story. (laughs) Oh man, that's brutal. Well, she is the best person. It's just that, like, you know, that uh, doesn't always translate, though. Yeah, she she's just got so. you know, in, in terms of, again, heroin difficulty level, you yeah. know, it's, I think it goes, uh, my my favorite is Persuasion. And yeah. her name's escaping me at the moment. No. I bring COVID, um, well, I bring COVID brain. Um, but favorite heroine, favorite book is Persuasion. I feel like that is mm-hmm. the most romantic. It, it acknowledges so much. It, it encapsulates so much. Uh, certainly, I, like, I, I, like, I personally cannot retell persuasion because i don't know 
what I do differently. Yeah. <laughs> like some some things are like, well, I'd be interested in seeing where this goes, and like, and I just feel like I be persuasive and sort of like, yes, that was beautiful. No so, notes. <laughs> oh, so persuasion most highest difficulty level. Fanny Price, yeah. um, Northanger Abbey. <laughs> <laughs> I I. Someone who scares herself. I just, you know, but ha- she has her, she's still, you know, the broke girl with the rich folks, so. And then. Yes. Uh, of the heroines, you know, our, our girl, uh, uh, Elizabeth Bennett, is probably as, right under Emma in terms of uh, economic class and social stature uh, mm-hmm. and the ability to hook a rich dude. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, man. we If we all had that skill. Uh, to, to insult a rich man and still get him anyway. <laughs> um, it is, yeah, I, I, I think that, I mean, it can be really intimidating, right? To take on like a, a work that is so admired and, and make it your own. But I, I definitely like, I think there, you're right that there is like a tier of like difficulty levels of like, okay, there's the ones that you love so much that like you could never touch them. And there are the ones you're like, well, okay, but what if we did this? Um, and I, I, I think that's, that's so, that's so funny. Um, but I did want to ask, so you said that your, is your favorite adaptation uh, of Pride and Prejudice, is that going to be the, the, the Lizzie Bennet Diaries? Adaptation, yes. I yes. think so. Yeah. Uh, I, I think, um, I know there's a whole debate between, uh, for, like, straight, like, I, I feel like the film, the, the classics set in the time, they are different than, like, the adaptations. Mm-hmm. So... I know there's a big debate between 2005 and mm. uh, the 1995 BBC with Colin Firth, Jim Reel. And so here, here's my thing. Is this, Again, this is where you enhance. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I personally think that the romance or the relationship, like relationship to romance, is better portrayed in the 1995 version. Mm-hmm. Although a lot of people like the hand-holding and the, you know, of the... Um, 2005 i think that the family dynamics and the 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 society is better portrayed and more or more like more that are translated to modern audiences in the 2005 yeah i feel like if you need you need to watch the 2005 for the context and then you need to watch the 1995 for the relationships (laughs) yeah well, you know, it's it's funny because I, I agree with you. I think that, you know, the 1995 uh, is like, I mean, it is it is almost 100% faithful to the text, like word for word, scene for scene. That's why it's so long. Um, and it's, you know, that that's that has its value. Right. But then if we're talking about just cinematic love story, 2005 is delicious. Um, but then, of course, who can forget Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, um, which I think is everyone's favorite adaptation. We just don't want to talk about it. <laughs> um, I so my my roommates and I we used to do a um, a movie night every Friday, and we do like a special meal along with it. So my roommate Paige and I we would like we pick our like favorite dish or whatever. We'd like try a new recipe, we'd cook it, and then we'd like every other week we'd pass off the buck for like who got to choose the movie, and. 
incredibly, one night we decided to do uh, Pie and Prejudice, um, <laughs> which involved making a giant shepherd's pie and also getting one of those like frozen pies um, <laughs> and, like, and eating that up. And we put, we they were both so big that we just, we didn't bother with plates. We just kind of put both on a, on a long a baking sheet and sat on my bed and propped my laptop on, up on a chair in front of us and just <laughs> took spoons and ate from the baking sheet. That's great. Um, and we watched a double feature of the 2005 Pride and Prejudice and then Pride and Prejudice and Zombies uh, with my filmmaker third roommate who we somehow managed to rope in and who decided incredibly at the end that uh, although the 2005 Pride and Prejudice obviously had a better story than Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, Pride and Prejudice and Zombies had way better cinematography <laughs> you know, it's Pride and Prejudice. That's saying endures. something because Pride and Prejudice 2005 is some great cinematography. Yeah, but like there are some like weird shots in it, and I didn't notice them until until uh, she pointed it out, and then I was like, oh yeah, why is that weirdly zoomed in on that one person's terrible haircut? Huh? Strange. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, my but, favorite thing that happened. Oh, sorry. Yeah, no, go ahead. I said my favorite thing in Pride and Prejudice 2005 is the mm-hmm. scene. Where we are in, I think it's the last party, and we are fall. We are just going from going up the house, mm-hmm. and we see people come and go in and out of rooms. We see servants. We see mm-hmm. Mary go from storming off in one room to going to cover her father in another room, mm-hmm. and I, I feel like okay, this is it. This like, that scene alone is worth the price of admission to me. Yes. That was I. I loved all of the scenes in the Bennett house. I loved like when they're getting ready and they're like doing the the like rag curls and they're like and they're just chilling in their corsets and they're just like yeah this is what we kind of miss in the really stuffy you know um, uh, adaptations where we kind of never see them as human beings uh, just who would have existed in the world and had the same problems and like you know had to get ready for a party. <laughs> uh, and frankly, I mean, this is why I said the context. Like the level of embarrassment of embarrassing that the the the, uh, the her the Bennets are in so nineteen ninety five. Um, so it's like very loud. Like it's 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 almost unbelievably loud. And this sort of like the two thousand five is like you come in their house and like you leave the other field. You come in your house. You're like oh. Just like stepping into this house, you're sort of like, okay, I get it, I get it. Yeah. <laughs> like I've been in this anything. house. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like 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 um, there's that one scene where like it's kind of hilarious where Karen Notley like turns on a swing and then we see the seasons change. <laughs> um, and just sort of like, yeah, she's just walking around in muddy boots in her gross backyard where all the pigs are. Like, like this is not appealing. Nope. And her dad's just sitting in his office, going like, "I see nothing. Don't bother me, please." Uh, okay. Just, so, yeah. Uh, I'm not saying this is my controversial, um, my most controversial Prime Precious opinion. Mm-hmm. So buckle up. I'm here. Uh, hot I'm ready. Take. So you know, there's a scene where in Prime Precious where she's realizing sort of how her parents got the, the likely origin story of her parents, or she's imagining, Jane is imagining her, I'm not sorry, not Jane, Lizzie's imagining the origins of her parents' marriage. Mm-hmm. And she sees Lydia as the likely counterpoint to her mom. Mm-hmm. And I think that is satisfying to readers. It, it may, and you know, it's probably what Jane Austen intended. Yeah. But from other people who are less biased, whose descriptions of the relationship 
her her mom was fun and the most beautiful and everyone liked her and her dad was a rich man who admired her but so, kind of did have his own head on straight and mm. married her anyway sounds a whole lot more like Jane and Bingley than it does like Lydia and anyone else I think her mom was Jane and her, her mom is what happens when you're very pretty with very little backbone and you have to you stop, you stop being pretty and you have mm. to start acting out passive aggressively yeah. And I feel like, you know, like there's a short story in my heart that is like going to like, like, you know, of her with surrounded by five little girls and not able to get her husband's attention anymore and pretending mm-hmm. to faint because something's got to get done and she's got to get it done by God. Even if she has to be the crazy one to do it. <laughs> I've always, you know, it's funny as I've gotten older, like I have, I've rewatched the, the special and then I've rewatched the movies and I've always, now as an adult, I kind of come away really disliking Mr. Bennett. Um, yeah. Like, like a lot. Like he, he clearly loves his daughters, but he also kind of is just a dick to his whole family a lot. Like he doesn't, he clearly like doesn't have the same level of, um, urgency that his wife has to take care of their daughters he clearly kind of like looks at his wife is like oh god please like you're just like you're just the most and as as i think a kid or or you know a teenager i looked at that and was like well of course he feels that way she's crazy and then as an adult i'm watching going like hey dude like maybe pay attention to your family man like, I don't know, maybe don't be such a jerk or don't like start fights and then like leave the room as he does a couple of times. Yeah, he definitely like starts a fire, puts on his like, like 19th century sunglasses and walks like, <laughs> and then, sits like, like, walks like away. moon walks out of the room. <laughs> like, not my problem. Bye. Um, But so, yes, I definitely agree with I think you got to pick one. You either don't care about your girl's prospects. So you get them an education. Yeah. Of some kind. Mm-hmm. Or you do care about your girl's prospects and you get them married. Mm-hmm. Or you attend all these things and you're polite and you elbow your wife when she's being too much so she won't discourage people. Mm-hmm. But you can't do neither. Like, no. Well, also apparently being bad at farming. I don't know. <laughs> like. Yeah. Yeah. Like all, all of it. All of it. And then he just, every time we see him where he's not doing... Like, either starting a fight or just, like, letting his wife humiliate their entire family and therefore lower everyone else's chances of, like, having any sort of life. Uh, Like, he's just, like, sitting in his office just kind of reading a book (laughs) instead of, like, doing anything. Yeah, it's just sort of... Have you ever seen What Hot American Summer? uh, Oh, a long time ago. Okay. Well, like, there's a... a, Paul Rudd has has this character where he's just, like, the cool guy. Like, the... Mm -hmm. and it's just, it's like, Mr. Bennett was what happens if the cool guy grows up and never stops, like, being, like, an eye-rolling teenager, but in, like, mm-hmm. an adult man's body. Just sort of like, uh, society. I'm just going to read my house and read my books. Just sort of like, that's not how this works! You have five children! <laughs> who, who will, if you die unexpectedly, or at all, really, be destitute? Like, buddy, please! Get your head in the game! You have children! Um, anyway, um, yeah. <laughs> that's, this is a Mr. Bennett hate club. I'm going to make some pins later. 
<sighs> All right. So I think that this is a good place to stop um, in the middle of our rage uh, about how Mr. Ben and Teresa's family and his wife in particular. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so this is the plug zone. Uh, Eden, go off. Tell us about what you got going on. Tell us where to find you. Tell us everything. This is your zone. This is your platform. Do it. Okay. Okay. So I am on Instagram at Eden A, like Apple writes. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the same for my uh, Facebook page. Mm-hmm. Um, I have my book is available where books are sold. Amazon is also bookshop.org uh, mm-hmm. if, or independently. Uh, or if you want to order from your favorite bookshop it, uh, itself, you can uh, mm-hmm. just email and ask and they'll help you. I checked the other day when I was at work, and it is available from the wholesalers, uh, both on the West and East Coast. So if you get them from an independent bookstore, you can still get it prior to the holidays. Yes. So go ahead and do it. It fits, it fits nicely in a, a, a carry-on bag, so if you need something to get your friends and family you're traveling with, they can uh, give them a nice, fluffy... It's uh, got a pretty cover. It's like, it's gorgeous. It's a great gift. And I really wanted to write a book that was full of joy for, mm-hmm. for my, my, um, my typically um, characters who may not always get joy. You mm-hmm. know, um, women of color and trans women, often when you read a book, you're like, what terrible thing is going to happen? And mm-hmm. like, I, this may be a spoiler, but like, I, there's no violence against the characters in my book. I just, no. that's a line that I wanted to not, to not draw from myself is that like, I was sick of reading those kind of narratives of, you know, just the suffering of a character on their way to happiness. And so, like, my characters learn and they grow and they struggle and they argue, but they do not have violence that uh, upon them. So, if no. this will not make you lose it on a plane for anything but emotional reasons. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, one thing I will say about your book, Eden, is that every page has so much love in it. It is a story of friends who love each other unconditionally and who happen to also love other people. Um, it is it is a incredibly loving book. It is an incredibly, I mean, I hate to use the term girl power, but man, the, like the levels of like girl support girl, like let's do this thing and take on the world, like very, very good, extremely high bar. Well, that's, you know, the reason, it's, again, it's called The Bennett Woman. I My, yeah. my starting place was a relationship between uh, EJ, Jamie, and Tessa. Their mm-hmm. friendship is what anchors them, and, mm-hmm. and then they, with the strength, of, strength and the support of their friendship, they're able to go out and do other things. Yeah. Yeah. It's beautiful. It's a wonderful book. I, y- y'all should get it. You should get it for the holidays. You should get it for everyone you know. Come on. There's plenty of copies available in the warehouse. I checked. Your bookseller checked for you. Um... Okay, so is there anything else? Do you have any other projects coming up? Any like live streams you're doing? Any events you want to plug before we move on here to my terrible pluggables? Well, uh, I things are actually quiet now because I'm working actively on book number two. Mm. Uh, <laughs> was this going to be a uh, uh, a romance? Um, it's going to be a more straightforward romance with a light sprinkle of Emma, but um, all right, yeah, of Emma inspiration. Um, mm-hmm. It's going to focus on EJ's sister, Maya, and mm-hmm. it's taking place in the now times with uh, the pandemic. So we're going to see how that okay. works out. <laughs> oh, all right. Well, I look forward to seeing how you uh, bring some light to that because that would be very refreshing. Okay. Oh, there is one thing um, I forgot. If yes. you are in the UK or Australia, 
Uh, I, I, that'd be very cool if you're listening. And uh, now until the 14th, you can get my a Kindle copy of uh, The Batwoman on sale. And there'll be a similar sale in the U.S. for one day uh, on November 29th. I know. You can cut that out. It's so be too. I can't remember what this airs. So no, this is coming out tomorrow, baby. See, we're oh, good. Okay. <laughs> we're good to go. Yeah, this is. We're cutting a little close. This month has been wild. Uh, but you know, um, so you should definitely get the Bennett women. You should keep an eye out for your next book. Here, here, unnamed, but definitely sounds awesome. Um, and you should follow Eden. Um, all of the links are going to be below bookshop.org your uh, Eden's social media all of that it's all going to be below so you can just click that stuff you know what to do um and and you know uh you know where to find me I guess y'all I mean come on if you listen to this podcast enough times you've, you've heard it but you can find me at Kingdom Thirst literally everywhere except for the places that I'm not you can also find me at Abigail K. Kelly on Twitter um I have a a near future urban fantasy serial coming out uh in February it's it's a honking beast of a book that I'm frantically editing to to get to my copy editor on December first. Let's not talk about that. Um, and uh, you can find a bunch of teasers and stuff across social media, but also at Patreon.com/slash/WorksByAbigail. Um, if you want to get a hold of me, you can go to Gmail and you can email me at KingdomOfThirst at Gmail.com. You can go to our website KingdomOfThirst.com. You can find the podcast everywhere. You know, you're already listening to it. Whatever. Um, and and that's about it. I guess you could also join our Discord if you want. All the links for everything that you could even imagine in most of what you can't is also going to be below. So that's it. That's all. Ooh. Eden, have you got something? I, I would be remiss if I did not thank the wonderful Adele Buck for connecting us in the first place. Yes! Her, bo- oh. her book, uh, her fast acting series, um, sorry, method acting, um, I, gosh, I can't remember, oh, but the, her Center State series. Yes, is, uh, yes, yes, yes. Available, again, everywhere books are sold. She is wonderful. Mm-hmm. Her books are wonderful. Thank you, Adele. Adele is a delight, and I can't wait to have her back on the podcast. She has, um, gosh, she has a novella coming out. Soon. Yes, yes. yes. I think, it, I think yes. it's fast acting. That's the one that. Um, yes. Wait, no, that's not the novella. The novella. Oh, the novella's gonna be a treat. So you have to have oh, her yes. back on to talk about that. Yes, I'm very excited. What did she say? It was like, um, God, uh, like an older female protagonist whose deadbeat husband is bringing yeah, like the his wedding bait. Wife. That's what it's called. Yes, yes. the wedding bait. Yes, 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 yes. I'm very excited to get my hands on that. I cannot wait. Um, yeah, so I, you know what? I'll put those links in there too. I already got Dell's links. We'll just pop them in there. There's going to be yeah. a lot of links to click. You got, <laughs> you got a wonderland of links to explore. Um, but that's the episode for today. Thank you so much for being on, Eden. This has Thank been so much fun. Thank you for such a wonderful conversation. This is a joy. Oh, well, I can't wait to have you back for the next book, okay? I'm, I'm already putting a pin in it. All right. All righty, guys. Well, you can catch the next episode next week. for <laughs> The first episode of December is the first in a series called A Vampire for Christmas. Enjoy! Kingdom of Thirst is a member of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find all of our episodes and tons of new podcasts to listen to at frolic.media slash podcasts.